Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torques, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. All right, everyone. Welcome back to uh, on the fourth installment of the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Uh, I think we got a good good episode for you today. We're going to talk about um, you know some recent wins we had um, and some of the things we got about trial law uh, coming in. So again, I'm I'm John Fisher again with my uh, partner Jordan Redavid. Uh, we're here promoting in live from the beautiful and cloudy Atlanta, Georgia. But nice <laughs> to be here. Thank you everybody for coming back. Uh, we're excited to talk about this week's episode because it's an interesting take on a case that we really thought was going to be a trial case, had to be a trial case. And it involved um, a case where our client got second degree burns over her abdomen and legs and other areas through her clothing when a hot soup, a hot Vietnamese soup dish that she had ordered to go on her lunch break spilled on her lap in the car. So we're going to deep dive into that case because it touches on a lot of things that come up across the board in cases, including comparative fault as a defense. So um, at the time we're recording this, we were set to start trial in a few days, but yesterday afternoon, the defendants insurer finally tendered the full policy limits of a million bucks. And that was an offer that for all the reasons that we're going to talk about today made sense for our client to take. And she did. And she was ecstatic with the results because it's, uh, it's full and fair justice for her. That's the bottom line. When she first hired us, I asked her to place her faith in us and trust the process to be patient, understanding it was going to be stressful. It was going to be long and it surely was not going to be easy and without hiccups. And it wasn't, it was all those things, but I'm really, really grateful that we were able to deliver that. So before we deep dive into that case in particular, John, I just wanted to toss it to you to talk about a little bit. Maybe you can preview for for our listeners out there when there's cases that deal with comparative fault as a defense. I mean, what does that even mean as a concept? And then what does it mean to you as a practitioner? So obviously, um, we in Florida have the benefit of a pure comparative negligence state. What, what does that mean? That means that, you know, if a jury determines that there's liability on both the defendant and the plaintiff and they, you know, determine an apportionment between those two, no matter what it is, they're going to have to pay their 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 share. So if the defendant is 60% responsible, whatever the damages award is, they will pay 60% of that. Now, other states, and Jordan can talk about this, in, in Georgia, for instance, if the plaintiff is 50% responsible, they get zero. Right. That that's a modified comparative negligence state. There are other states that if the plaintiff is one percent responsible, they get nothing. Right. Completely unfair, unjust It's not. You know, it it defies logic and common sense is that a person could be ninety nine percent responsible for the harm and not have to pay a single cent of damages. It's just it's the the tort reform. I think we're super fortunate. I've talked to colleagues in other states, North Carolina, Etc. where it's not a pure comparative and you know they've got it they're they're sledding uphill uh right out of the gate and yeah. it's a challenge because comparative fault meaning where the defendant is going to try and blame the plaintiff to some degree it's a common defense it's it's understandable why i mean it's a, it's a big tool for them to use in their tool tool belt but 
you know, in cases where it's an auto accident, you can imagine that any number of ways, you know, your client was driving too fast. Your client was distracted by the phone. They stopped short. That's why I rear-ended them, whatever. But in a case like the one I want to talk about today, the hot soup burn case, comparative fault is everything. I mean, that's the hill that the defense uh, was going to live and die on ultimately. So let's kind of deep dive into that case, and it'll give us a few little facts and tidbits that we can pause and, and extrapolate on. So this is a case in Gainesville, Florida, in Alachua County, where the University of Florida is. Our client is born and raised Gainesville. She was in her mid-30s, black female, professional assistant in the UF health system as an, in terms of an administrator. She was on her lunch break in September 2020, and she went to a local shopping center where she knew there to be a Vietnamese restaurant. She'd been there on a handful of occasions before, always ordered the same dish, which is a soup dish with like a chicken broth base and a few different condiments that you toss in. On this particular occasion, it was a little busier than usual, and they were just delayed in giving her her order, but she went in person to place it, waited a few minutes, and when it was finally ready, they handed it to her in a single bag. And that was different than how it had been in the past, at least by her recollection, the defendant disputed that in discovery. But basically, they packaged it as following. There was a square styrofoam box, those flimsy boxes, inside of which was lettuce, vegetables, you know, chicken, whatever you're going to put in the broth. And then stacked on top of that was a heavier cylinder, a plastic Tupperware cylinder of the hot broth stacked right on top. And then they put all that in a thin white plastic bag to go and, and tied it at the top. So they hand this to her and right out of the gate, they don't warn her verbally. There's no comment whatsoever about the soup is super hot. It can burn you, whatever. And, you know, for a lot of people out there, you might be saying to yourself, like some of the prospective jurors in our focus group did, everybody knows soup is hot. Why does there need to be a warning? I think if you just stop and you drill deeper on that, John, I don't know how you feel about it, because we did bring failure to warn claims, both in like a negligent sense and a products liability sense. We need warnings on products or we need warnings about products, even when the risk is known, because we cannot defer to every consumer out there knowing every conceivable way in which a product can harm them. So in this particular case, I, I, I caution people to think back, you know, the hot suitcase with the Leibowitz plaintiff 30 years ago. Now you've got hot or caution contents hot on virtually every hot liquid you buy. It wasn't on this one. We still have it just the same way I tell people all the time. I mean, why do we need signs on the side of a highway that say, you know, deer could be crossing? I mean, everybody knows the woods are around, a deer could come. But we want to do more to protect people in this country. We want to do more to protect people in the state of Florida specifically. And even though the danger, the risk is technically known, we want to do the right thing and, and remind people from time to time at that transactional level, hey, I'm about to hand you something that's dangerous be mindful because we've all got other stuff going on in our lives. And I think it's people are entitled to at least that minimum level of decency and courtesy. And, and the law reflects that. How do you feel about warning? Cases? Well, I think that, I mean, and I, and I, you said that the hot soup case, and it's actually the hot coffee case was the one we're talking about the McDonald's hot coffee, where the woman spilled it right. into her lap where she actually was doing more, right? She's sitting in the passenger seat. She's opening it herself. She's trying to put it in and she spills it. Now there was the issue in that case was that they had what, 700 plus burns beforehand they knew about it they they were cooking it to a temperature so hot that people in the store because they had free refills wouldn't allow them to drink it fast enough while they were sitting there so they wouldn't get a refill and they could save money right and that's that, that that's kind of what these things are driven by a lot of times is is they 
it's a monetary decision for these companies to to do things in a certain way. In this particular case, while yes, soup is hot, you expect food to be hot or warm when you buy it. The problem is what you don't expect it to be is scalding, right? And we know this because Jordan, um, you know, kind of what he did is we actually, as the plaintiff's lawyers, we hired investigators. And a lot of times we deal with surveillance on the other side. You have a person that's claimed they're injured. They, the defendants fall around. Sometimes they come out of cover of darkness. They sit outside their house with a little screen and, and outside the window and they videotape them and fall around and say, aha, you're not hurt. Look at you. Here you are working. Here you are smiling. And, you know, they try to use that to our advantage. Now there's ways to deal with that at trial. So we did kind of the same thing. Before we even filed the lawsuit, we sent in private investigators to order the same thing and what they realized and what they got was that they weren't provided any warnings of the contents and then we tested the temperature and you know i think we tested temperatures anywhere from 173 degrees to 100 and then the second round of surveillance was 189 degrees right the the time it takes and the and the level of burn from a for giving to someone at 189 degrees is is quick and so when you're talking about warning someone, like, look, yes, I know soup is hot, but is it this hot? Is it right. don't even touch this thing? You know, and, and we know that afterwards, after this lawsuit was filed, they started telling customers, this is hot like lava. That's yeah, what that's they, what I was going to say. So we, one of the investigators we ended up sending in, we sent three rounds, disclosed to, kept the other one as work product, just because, you know, it, it got redundant at some point, but... One of the investigators went in there after the lawsuit was filed, after these claims were being heavily prosecuted and litigated. Uh, and then the defendant started changing its conduct and, and it would change the packaging. So instead of a flimsy white paper bag, it was a brown paper bag. Uh, instead of no written warnings, there was now a huge orange sticker with a fire symbol on it that said hot. And then you want to talk about verbal warnings. They would not really even hand the bag over until they told the investigator it was hot like lava. And if it's in your car, it can burn you. If you touch it soon, it'll burn you like lava. Um, so clearly, you know, we talk about greater good and altruism and, you know, you want to have one plaintiff at a time, but if you can set some ripples through the lake and, and change something larger for the greater good of society, that's great. And obviously we know in this particular locale of Florida, in this restaurant, we've made that, that change. I thought what was different on, on the warnings, really interesting was the defendant in the 30B6 depot said that we warn everybody. I tell all my employees to warn everybody, of course, even though soup is hot, we still warn people. Of course we do that. When, of course, on six different occasions over two years with two different investigators, they never had done that um, until we disclosed that information. They realized what we had, and then now they changed their behavior. But, John, I don't know how you felt. So the defense, they didn't even hire a medical expert. We're going to talk about the damages later. But on the warning side, they hired someone with like 50 years working in restaurants. He had owned some restaurants. His son had owned some restaurants. He managed them. He trained people. He had never served, you know, Vietnamese soup dishes before, but right. they bring this guy in and this was his first time ever testifying as an expert. I think that showed in his deposition because he took some kind of unbelievable, incredible positions in his discovery deposition, even on the topic of warnings. So I asked him, look, the defendant says that they warn people. That's a reasonable thing to do, right? So if my client says on this occasion, they didn't warn her, you know, that's a problem. And he, he went so far as to say, John, you'll recall, I think, I think he said, no, the a restaurant never needs to warn anybody about anything. Everybody knows, you know, soup is hot and therefore it would be unreasonable to warn. It's right. so above and beyond. You don't even need to do that. Yeah. That's what he said. He said it's, it would be, it's, it's not reasonable to warn someone. 
And he and then he also went so far to say there is no maximum temperature at which you can serve someone a a hot liquid. And I was like, so then you can give someone by his logic boiling hot soup. I can take it right from the boiling stove, put it in a dish, serve it to a customer, and that's safe. And it's just. You know that that kind of testimony. He finally, he finally started to concede on that one. Well, because that that hypothetical. What he was trying to say is that there there's there's minimum food temperatures of which things have to be heated when. So the way they processed this was they they cooked large vats of this broth first, right? Then they stored it in a refrigerator overnight, and the next day during rush they would they would heat it up, heat the contents up, and put it in a to go container. That's what they did. The, the health regulations require, if you do that, and this is for the protection against foodborne illnesses, is that they have to heat it to 165 degrees. That has to maintain that temperature for 15 seconds, I think. And then it can't fall below 135, right? That's like the danger zone, they call it, where you could have, I guess, bacteria development and things like that. That's it. There, there actually is no food standard in, in Florida, and I don't even think nationally, as to the appropriate temperature that you can serve something. But the lack of a standard doesn't mean giving something, someone that hot with no warning in a container that, that really can't withstand that heat is reasonable, right? Because right. I, because That's I, the standard. That's the legal standard, right. reasonable. And, I, and to Jordan's point, I think that, you know, a lot of the things that like, like, look, plaintiff's lawyers get a bad rep, but the reason why products are safe, the reason why bad drugs are off the market, the reason why, you know, there's recalls is because someone was harmed. They had the courage to fight against these large corporations. And, and this one wasn't a large corporation, but an effectuate change to protect the next person. And, and I guarantee you this will not happen again. Well, I don't want to say. Yeah, I mean, we know that now with that third investigator who went and with right. the lava comments. We've made so, so know, the, warnings. Warnings are super important, and I agree with John. When we were prepping this case for trial, it was John who broke it down in a way that I think, had we tried this case, would really would have resonated with jurors. Which is like, look, we all know soup is hot, but is it reasonable to warn people? It's reasonable to do that. Well, if it's reasonable to do that then you should do it. And if you don't, then that's negligence, right? It's not about whether it would have prevented this definitively or not. It's just what's more likely. And I think a warning here definitely would have helped. Now, I want to switch gears. We talked about the temperature of the soup. And you're right. There was the hot coffee case all those years back when McDonald's. If memory serves me in that McDonald's case, the Bonomatic or whatever machine they were using to heat the coffee was bringing it up to about 180, 190 degrees Fahrenheit. And they had, um, if I recall correctly, all kinds of experts to explain you need that, you know, whether it's for taste, aroma, so that the it, it's not cold when somebody takes it to go and goes home, whatever it was. They had all these experts explaining the reasons. It's interesting here, though, when we set the defendant for depo, now, mind you, the soup spills. Nobody took the temperature of the soup before it was given to my client, uh, meaning there was no internal temperature logs in the restaurant, you know, as they bring it back up to heat kill those foodborne illnesses, nobody's sitting back there with a thermometer taking the temperature, writing it down and giving it to our client. But in the deposition, that's what the defendant said that they did. She said, oh no, here, she even held up, here's this Taylor digital kitchen thermometer and everyone in the kitchen knows you have to check the temperature before you serve it. I thought it was a ridiculous position. I, I was surprised that they even made it. I think had we gone to trial, that would have really blown up badly for them. But I got to use that against them because then I said, okay, well, if you're checking the temperatures, that must mean you have certain thresholds you're checking them for. Meaning if you check the temperature and it's past X you know, degrees, you're not going to serve it because it's dangerous. Or if it's lower than Y degrees, you know, you're not going to serve it for foodborne illnesses. So they kind of backed themselves into a corner where they had to give me 
they had to be the ones to create what was a reasonably safe temperature because it didn't exist in the regs. So doing that, I just kept pressing. Well, what about 150 degrees Fahrenheit? Oh yeah, that's fine. In fact, it's got to be 160 and so forth. It got to the point where she, the, the designee for the company basically said, look, anywhere between 155, 165 is, is where we've got to heat this thing at, at least. I said, well, would you ever serve it at 170 Fahrenheit or hotter? No, we wouldn't do that. At that point, it's starting to get too hot. I would be concerned about burning a customer. Now, mind you, I'm sitting there. I know my investigator has already been there and the soup's in excess of 170 degrees Fahrenheit every single time it's ordered. I hadn't yet had the, the second investigator come back at 180 plus, but I assumed that it, it might happen on occasion. So I boxed her in and I said, would you ever knowingly serve this soup? I mean, you're back there checking temperatures. Would you ever knowingly serve it at 180 plus? Yes or no? No, we, we have never done that. Would never do that. You know, that kind of thing. Why not? Because it would at that point, it would clearly burn a customer. Well, now she's given me the evidence. This, co this corporation, it's a, it's a mom and pop corp, but it's a corporation, has given me binding 30B6 testimony that they have now created internally an expectation where if their soup dish is hotter than this, these thresholds, it's too dangerous because it could burn a customer. Now I go send out another investigator. Lo and behold, despite what she's telling us in a deposition in real life, when they're handing these packages to customers, they go out to the parking lot and check the temperature with the thermometer, it's 180 plus, yeah, 180, almost 190 plus. 189 degrees. And the problem is, is she used the words that I, the word that I, I tell my clients and, and when I prepare them for deposition to not use, which is never, right? She said, yeah. I would, we never do this. And then here we are, we have three separate occasions on three different days and you're doing it every time, right? I mean, that you're a liar. That, that, that is, you lie. You say, we never do this. You claim you test the temperature, which is not true, but that's what she said. So that means you are knowingly serving in excess of these temperatures and then claiming you don't do it. And so right. and that know, was a big point we leveraged. Remember earlier in the case, we sought leave, excuse me, to amend for punitive damages in Florida. You can't just outright plead punitives. punitives. You've got to bring your claims first. And then through some discovery, get some additional evidence that meets the statutory threshold, which is a reasonable showing of a reasonable basis to recover, whether for intentional misconduct or gross negligence. So we had this invest these investigators six different occasions over two years, 100% of the time, it's in excess of temperatures that the defendant has admitted in a 30B6 are dangerous. So we used that to amend for punitive damages, but it was denied. It was denied. And that took the wind out of my sails a little bit for my client because I was pretty confident based on that limited... Uh, threshold that we needed to get it over, we could do that. And had we amended the pleadings, I think it would have given us a, a better chance at an earlier settlement, but it was denied. So now we're back to square one. We've got this good evidence. Maybe it falls nicely on a juror's ears, but what can we do with it before trial to leverage? And so <clears throat> it became this big dispute, which ultimately memorialized itself in competing motions eliminating. The defense took the position uh, a, we violated rules of discovery because we were basically conducting unnoticed side inspections. Uh, that's how they framed it. And then B, even if it was lawful for us to do that under the discovery rules, it's all subsequent to the accident here. So how is that possibly relevant? And these allowed us to actually delve deep into some parts of our evidence code that we don't always get to use, right? I think everyone remembers from law school, subsequent remedial measures and all that. So it was interesting on, on the, just the evidentiary side, putting the discovery thing away because it was kind of nonsensical. Those discovery rules exist to protect rights to privacy. There's no right to privacy 
in a lobby of a restaurant open to the public. So that didn't really come to pass. Let's talk about the evidence. We basically said, look, a couple of things here. It's not even a, a remedial measure because nothing's changed, right? Yeah. Uh, they tell us they don't do this. And over two years, six different occasions, every single time they're doing it. What's remedial about that? Nothing. So this is actually, we, we changed it. We went one section back in the evidence code. I think it's 90.406, not 90.407. It said, this is evidence of a routine practice of an organization. And in Florida, can't speak in every jurisdiction, but in Florida, there's a, a statute in our evidence code that says, if it's a person you're talking about, you can't use it, right? Pattern of conduct, bad behavior, four, four type stuff. But if it's a company and you have evidence of a routine practice, like a habit, even if it's uncorroborated, you can use it in a trial. And so that's that's the arguments we presented. We never got a definitive ruling because the case settled on the eve of trial, but that was kind of the battle we were having. And also, you know, for the Florida practitioners out there, and I'm happy to share this, this work product, but there's some good cases out there that explain even subsequent incidents can be admissible as long as they're used for a proper purpose. A primary case I think of, I think it's out of the fourth DCA, even though the plaintiff there was at Disney World in Orlando, you would think a fifth DCA case. That was where like uh, someone got hurt on the bumper cars at Disney World or some similar ride, hurt their back. And then it turns out after they got hurt, a few more people got hurt on the same ride. And there was a debate whether or not the rules of evidence allow that evidence to come in. Trial court in that case said, no, it got reversed on appeal. So we had the benefit of, of binding precedent because uh, there was nothing to the contrary. So there were, there were some interesting points, but all of that to say this, you're sitting with a case where your client is horrifically burned, disfigurement, pain, suffering, all of these things, mental anguish. The damages are legitimate, but liability is tough because there's no temperature log to prove what the temperature was. And you know my, our client, like probably anybody else reasonable, at least re any other reasonable person under the circumstances, the soup is spilled. What, what are you doing? How are you going to manage to figure yeah. out how hot the soup was? You're trying to address these burns of your flesh, right? So the defense used that against us, though. And I thought to give them credit, they did a, an effective job during the discovery and motion practice stage by saying, this is her fault. Uh, first of all, she took the soup off our property. Once that happens, why should be responsible? She was in her car when it happened. And she discarded the soup container. So let's kind of drill deep on that, John. Let's start maybe with the soup container. One of our claims in the case was that the packaging, the literal plastic broth container was not suitable for, for temperatures of broth like this. And it was interesting because we didn't have the container our client threw it away. So there was these competing notions of, well, here's some exemplars and what we think that shows versus, hey, from the defense, hey, the plaintiff spoliated the critical evidence here. We're prejudiced. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's difficult because in the one hand, we, we kind of go after the defense for destroying evidence. And I think in this case, you know, I don't know, Florida, Florida's kind of, it's not really clear sometimes on, on some of their rulings and decisions because it seems to me like there has to be a duty and obligation. And sometimes you got to send a spoliation letter to the defense to trigger that duty. But when it's the plaintiff and they're the one harmed and they have the device that harmed them, you know, is their duty kind of automatic? And, and it's not really clear for me, you know, because, and, and people may not be thinking like, oh, I need to sue someone immediately when something happens, right? right. It spilled on me. I cleaned my car out. I threw the shit away, you know? Um, so I, I think that was, we had to deal with that. But what, but the problem is that we have her testimony and her testimony was basically when I moved, what she tried to do was take it from the floorboard because it was sloshing around and wanted to put it in her cup holder. 
And as she was taking in the cup holder, she said it kind of malformed and the top popped off. But she said, and this is kind of important because she said there were no holes poked in the lid. And if anybody who's gotten Vietnamese pho soup and they order it, look at the top of the lid. There's holes poked in there. They do that so that temperature, that steam can can, uh, uh, escape, lower the temperature. And so it didn't have that. So it kind of had that steam inside. It pops off and then spills all over her. But then we don't have it, right? So it's just her word saying that was the case. And so... You know, I mean, I, I think that created a challenge in the sense of, you know, you're the one that's building on yourself. I, we, you know, we did the focus group and a lot of people were like, we don't believe her. We think she was trying to eat it, which I, I don't think they've ever eaten faux soup because you don't eat the broth. You have to mix it with the ingredients that's in the other container. But, you know, so that was something that, you know, back to the comparative negligence argument is that we had a case where, you know, our concern at trial was overcoming her her fault, right? You know, you, someone gave it to you, you put it on the floor, you were more concerned with it spilling, and then you took it out and spilled it on yourself. Now, she says it's because the, the device or the thing failed, right, with something we don't actually have. And, I mean, that's it's the standard. Solution. Oh, and remember, by the way, the defendant at least gave us the evidence we needed to argue it beyond just our client's word, which is remember in 30B6, we talked about those holes in the top and it was the defendant who said, look, we buy these plastic containers. We under, we, we are under the impression they're suitable for soup, but we know that we have to poke two or three holes in the top to let that steam out. Why? And she said, because otherwise the lids pop off. So right. we had something to pull, you know, yarn to pull, but yeah, I mean, when you don't have the product and you're blaming the defendant and the defendant is going to be able to walk into trial and say, they, they want us to believe the, the plastic container was defective and then they threw it out. That's not fair to us. And and yeah. there's a legitimate argument there. And by the way, on the legal side of it, forgetting trial, I'm talking pre-trial, the defendant moved for spoliation sanctions in the form of an adverse inference. You know, it would, it would have been a jury instruction, which is that, you know, you, you don't need to jury, but you can decide that the evidence actually would have been favorable to the defendant, but nevertheless, the plaintiff discarded whatever. And fortunately we had a hearing on that. The judge decided this is not something best decided before trial. It's better decided in trial when both sides right. have rested. So we know definitively what the record is. So that was going to be something we were going to have to readdress. But yeah, John, it's a, your point is, is valid, which is that it's a legitimate concern and it also bears on the comparative fault. And it's it's just hard in a product's liability case without the product to really press that too aggressively without looking a bit unreasonable yourself when your client discarded it. No matter how reasonable it would be for anyone in that circumstance, having just been burned, to throw out the container, right? Lawsuits aren't on your mind. But let's talk about comparative fault even more because there's so much to it. This was their this was their defense, and there was a lot for them to work with. One of the things was <clears throat> why'd you move even why did you move the soup at all? Right? You get a package, it's already tied, you put it on the passenger floorboard. Why move it at all? And and because you chose to do that, how is that our fault? And so that's why we had to talk about negligence in terms of packaging not just the plastic container itself, but how they're stacked, right? right. The, the idea that you don't put it in two separate bags, you don't put it in a cardboard box or divide things with cardboard. You're taking the heavier, denser object, you're putting it on top of a flimsier object, right? What's going to happen there? You know, especially in a moving vehicle, you're serving this to go, you know, people drive. It's going to slide around and create a risk of spilling. So that was how we kind of at least anticipated getting around that. But I, I can uh, I can assure you out there, that was a big drum that the defense was beating. And they had more than just common sense to work with, John. Remember, some of the medical records here, I want to be respectful of our clients, you know, uh, HIPAA-protected rights, so we won't get into the exact specifics. 
But what we can talk about are generally speaking, there were some entries by some of her treating physicians, her initial PCP she went to, the burn clinic at the local university she went to, and uh, dermatology, right? These types of providers. There were some entries in there where the history of present illness was not always consistent. Right. And the defense was doing a good job kind of making that seem bigger than it was. Maybe you can shed some light on that. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the, it had one where, you know, she spilled it on herself eating in the restaurant. The other one was like she was eating it in her car and spilled it on her lap. And, you know, the, these are things that the defense jumps on, right? They take snippets from a medical record of, oh, well, they didn't say this or they they mentioned this or they had this or here's what it really says. And and they can be difficult to overcome. I mean, we, we had a case in a, in a premises liability case where in the hospital, now he says he fell because it was wet and they had just painted, but uh, it was wet from, I don't know what it was, but we turned down the case ultimately because in the hospital record, it says client was in a rush and he stepped down and missed some steps and fell. I was like, I'm not... you. I, what am I going to say? That's completely wrong. Some independent hospital from a story that you told them. And so that that presented a, a, a challenge on the damage side. And that's kind of like why this this case took so, you know, I don't want to say it took long, but, you know, they offered 50 grand. And then we just kept beating our drum of like, we're going to go to trial. Great, great. Awesome. Good job. And we just kept kept working, kept moving it. And it went from 50 grand. Then I think it was like then they went to 125. And we served a proposal for settlement for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Right. And the, in Florida, there, for those of you that don't know what a proposal for settlement is, you can send a proposal, either plaintiff or defense. If a plaintiff serves one, they have 30 days to accept it. If they do not accept it and you go to trial and get 25 percent more than you offered, they have to pay all of your attorney's fees from the date of the offer. And the same for the defense. If they serve one and then they, we go to trial and we get 25 percent less than what they offered, then we have to pay all their attorney's fees. Now, we'll talk about that here in a, in, a, in a moment about some of the things you can do to counteract that, but we were willing to settle pretty reasonably for two hundred fifty grand for someone that's scarred for the rest of her life. They said no. And then, you know, then it was one twenty five, then it was two fifty, and then it was three fifty. You know, and, and just recently, I mean, we took a, they had a discovery issue. We stayed that. We took a writ to the, uh, for, was a first DCA on a constitutional right to privacy issue. You know, that we, we didn't have a claim for medical bills or lost wages or anything, but yet they wanted to have her, um, like, uh, her employment history. They wanted her uh, transcripts from college. And we we're like, none of this is relevant to this case. And we have a constitutional right to privacy. And we took it up and it was pending and they ordered them to file a response. And so we were kind of hammering them from all fronts, going to trial, judge denies the continuance. Then they moved to stay judge denies that. And then I think they just, you know, under immense pressure, finally offered the policy limits and, and think about that, you know, a case that we were willing to settle for 250 grand, you know, we do a proposal for settlement and then they'd probably spend, including attorney's fees and experts and all this, probably spend another million dollars, including this rather settlement. And like, that's why sometimes having that confidence, that, that ability to just go try the case, right? They're not willing to put well, any they money. Need to, they need to know that you're going to go try the case, right. right? It's not like, it's not just an internal thing for yourself as the lawyer out there. I, I'll try this if I have to. I mean, you have to have that kind of confidence. It's that the other side has to know and believe in their heart. You're going to go and you're going you're gonna to try the hell out of it. And there's a really good chance that they'll lose. No matter how good they feel about their case, you know, John and I joke, like, 
in some ways I want people to look at us like cowboys, like we're competent, <laughs> we're confident, and we're a bit reckless, not, not outside the rules I'm talking about, reckless in the sense of our risk appetite is a lot higher than other people. So like John's point about the proposals for settlement is an interesting one here because we serve that our PFS at 250, 250,000 as soon as we could statutorily, which means really early in the case. <clears throat> I think once we serve that, perhaps on the other side, what they thought was, look, these guys are looking to settle it. There's a lot of, you know, pimples on this thing, so to speak. There's comparative fault. There's a missing product. There's going to be spoliation. You name it. I think from the beginning, they just thought eventually we'll cave. But we had to flip that on them and make them believe otherwise. And, and we did. That was legitimate. We were ready to try this case. And I think that's what got to the settlement. But before I kind of put the the medical records thing to, to rest, because I think it's an interesting point in any case, not just this case, the defense, you have to anticipate the defense is going to look through, they're going to leave no stone unturned, right? They get the big, big deep pockets of an insurance company behind them. If there's a medical record or something they can do with surveillance or social media, whatever it is to undercut your client's case, they're going to do it. And here they had it served up on a platter with a multitude of different medical records, all within a close proximity to one another, each one attributing certain statements to our client about how it happened, and they're all inconsistent. Now, fortunately, fortunately, some of them were so ridiculously inconsistent with the truth that it started to undermine the credibility of all the records because they're all from the same, technically the same university health system. So, for example, <clears throat> one of the records says she's eating soup in the restaurant, as John mentioned. Right. Undisputed, she wasn't in the restaurant. So we know that's false. Well, if one provider is attributing that statement to our client and it's patently false, then maybe some of the others are. And then you go to another record in the same visit, one of the nurses said soup was in her lap uh, when spilled. But in the other page of the note, another nurse said she was moving it from the floorboard to the center console. So that was more consistent with what our client had said. Now, when you give the defense all these different versions, it's easier for them to just say, look, throw them all out. She was just probably eating it, whatever. And then we had to just, we had to rebut that by saying, look, look at the medical records. They're also attributing that she said she lives with her grandparents. Uh, unfortunately, her grandparents died, you know, during the pandemic. So that's clearly inaccurate, right? Like, you, I don't right. want to make light of it, but I mean, you have to show other things that are clearly not true in the records to kind of flesh out. And when we depose these providers, John, you know, deposed the, the primary care provider, you have to give them something to work with that they can give you something back. So in this instance, when John deposed the primary care provider, the defense was taking the lead. Look at this part of the note. Look at this part. And, and this is what she told you, isn't it? This is what you know the plaintiff told you. And, and this is what you wrote down because it's true. Yes, 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 yes. Right. right. They're going to live and die with their note. How many patients do they see a day? How right. long ago was this? They don't truly remember. So they're going to look back at their note and say, whatever I wrote there, that's it. Well, that's, so John had that challenge to deal with. Maybe you could talk about. No, it. well, I mean, you know, we we did this in the and in, in the last case was that when look when the defense is using a medical record, one of the things and it's clearly wrong and it's clearly inaccurate. You know, people don't just want to accept that, right? Like, oh, why would this independent doctor? But we ha we have real experience. They're human beings. They make mistakes. You know, we had the trial where we talked about where our client, you know, had bad things in the records. And we're like, this is not right. It's, it's clearly wrong. And here's why. You know, they also said she had a baby four hours after. Right. after named her baby. Yeah. Right. Right. Which which clearly is inaccurate. 
you know, and so and then you use that against the defense experts who are only cherry picking that that information. And I'd be like, OK, well, when are they having a baby? And so this is the same 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 thing. I was, and I was confronting her. and I was like, are you sure? Well, I don't have an independent recollection of this, but this is what she would have told me. I was like, OK, well, you also have here. You check down in your notes like all of these things. And one of the things you checked was that she lived with her grandparents. Well, her grandparents were dead at the time they saw you. How is that possible? You know, and she has no answer for that. I was like, if your note is 100% accurate, how are you indicating that she lives with her grandparents that are no longer living? Right. Is it is it that she told you that or is it when you saw 20 people that day? Right. And you went back at the end of your shift. You remembered, oh, oh, this plaintiff, that patient, rather, she said something about soup. I think this is what she said. Well, right. You know? And the chart, the, her chart was open for like three hours. And it was like a 15 minute visit. And that was the other thing is like, well, when did you write this? Well, was it at the beginning? Was it at the end? You didn't close your note for three hours. So, you know, and how many people were you seeing at that time? And so like, you know, and, and it, you know, I think the defense counsel was like, you're attacking this woman. You suggesting she's a lot like, and I, he's not even her lawyer, you know? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm pointing out the fact that she can't say that everything in her record is accurate. And she finally kind of conceded that, yes, there are inaccuracies in the record. And that's all I need. Right. Let me take the and rest that's of maybe a, a learning point uh, for other people out there who, whether it's an expert witness or a medical provider, just a treater. And obviously you want to be respectful to these people. You want to be respectful to anyone. I don't care who it yeah. is, but you have a duty to your client to zealously advocate for them. And in the specific context of the deposition of a provider whose notes are unfavorable and seemingly incorrect, you've got to press. You can't be afraid to ratchet up, you know, how direct and, and aggressive at times you are with the witness to get to the truth, because that's what your client's entitled to. And John did a really good job with that. And we did the same thing with, with some of the other providers. So I mentioned earlier, they didn't have a damages expert because what are they going to say, right? The burns speak for themselves. It's clear she got burned and, and there's really no legitimate basis to suggest they came from anywhere else. We actually used um, the attending uh, burn surgeon from her treating burn clinic that she went to. We, we used him as an expert. We reached out. He remembered the case. We gave him the records and he was willing to be an expert to explain. These are 100% consistent with a scald injury from a hot liquid. You can see with the way the scarring is uh, dripping down, you know, it's consistent with everything that she said. There's no other explanation for it. Um, you know, these are second degree, deep partial thickness. You start explaining all that and they're permanent. You know, our client was a a black woman, and there were even additional concerns above and beyond what most people think about with the scar was elevated or pigmentation issues. And these were all things that we had to be uh, appreciative of as we were building to prepare our case for trial so that jurors fully and deeply understood the impact of this. But again, they didn't fight on damages. They weren't really going to. They were going to fight on the amount we asked for, but not that she was scarred. So the real question turned back to comparative fault with our client was, okay, is that is this legitimate? Like, is this was this a woman who was actually just eating on her lunch break, had an accident that is 100% her fault and looking looking for some money? I mean, that's just what the defense goes to. We can't fault them for being skeptical, but that, that's not what happened here. And we had some other evidence to support that. Um, the Google Maps basically showed that from where her office was located to the restaurant was like a six minute drive, super quick. So at the, at the red light where she said it happened, she was only a few minutes away from her office. What does that show for us? What were we going to say at trial? We we're going to say, look, this is not a 20 minute drive. First of all, there's no evidence she was rushed. There's no evidence she had to be back to clock in, uh, that kind of thing. And she's so close to her office. The, the reasonable thing to assume here, she was going to wait until she got back. Um, so she wasn't eating. The other thing <coughs> is there's no scars on her hands. 
There's no scars on her lips or tongue or cheek or face. So if the soup is so hot that the moment it comes into contact with your skin, it's creating second degree burns, where are the rest of the burns, right? The only burns were the ones that went through her clothing on portions of her lap and stomach area that are consistent with someone bringing something from the passenger floor towards their body because they've got to go near the center console. Then the lid comes off, the plastic container loses its form and it spills everywhere. I mean, that's what it was consistent with. So we had that to work with. But John, you mentioned something, and I, I don't want to skip over it because this is something that comes up, unfortunately, in my opinion, in a ton of different cases. It doesn't have to be hot spill. It can be a random car accident with orthopedic injuries, which is the defense wants to uncover seemingly every aspect of your client's life. I think many defendants, insurers, the counsel that they retain, they look through the lens of if you have filed a personal injury lawsuit, you're putting your whole life on blast. I don't care what it is, when it was, who, it, what the source of it is. I'm entitled to get it because you're, you're asking for pain and suffering. And they always say the same thing. Well, I got to know, did you have other issues in your life, you know, psychologically, whatever that made your life miserable to begin with. So how could this have made it worse? These kinds of things. We deal with that all the time in a myriad of ways, but in this particular case, you go through basically all of discovery, you're getting near the disco cutoff. And I think that's when the defendant realized we were really going to try this thing. So now they're scrambling because their client is a, Wonderful mother of two beautiful kids. She's actively involved in their lives. She's engaged to be married. She's born and raised salt of the earth, super credible. So they had to find something. So they were on a mission. They served, they, they rather proposed to serve subpoenas to her college. She, you know, they wanted her transcripts, her admission paperwork, her, her test scores. I mean, trying to see what kind of student she was. Why? I have no idea. They served uh, subpoenas to her private health insurer, which in a, in a general sense might not be problematic. But they wanted everything, including any payouts of benefits from other cases or application for benefits, you know, personal injury protection logs. I mean, there was no evidence she had ever had a prior burn at all. They had all her medical records, no evidence. So that was kind of aggressive. And then they wanted her employee records. This was the one that, that really jumped out to me and the client was really upset about. We fought for her with her constitutional right to privacy under the Florida Constitution, which is to say, uh, I'm not making a wage loss claim. I'm also not making a, a claim that I can't work in the future. So if I'm not making those claims for economic damages, why are you asking for my entire employee file? <coughs> Excuse me, time off, application, any reprimand, whatever. And the defense really didn't have a good argument for a lot of these things, the college and the employment. Basically what they were saying is we're fishing to try and find some basis to say that she's either not a good person or she's lying. You know, for example, our client's testimony was that after she got burned, she drove, she finished to drive back to her work parking lot, realized this was more serious than, than even she, I think, initially thought, called her supervisor and said, I got to go home, take the rest of the day off, which she did. Three other witnesses corroborated that. Her fiance, when he got home, her mom, her friends who called, whatever. The defendant said, no, I need to get her employee file because maybe the person she called maybe made a note. And if he didn't make a note, what? Does that mean she didn't make the call? You know, those kinds of things. So uh, we put up a big fight. Uh, not just into the untimeliness that they're waiting to the 11th hour to do this, but to say that just because you're a plaintiff in a personal injury case does not mean that there is no limit and that, that your right to privacy just dissipates. And so we presented that argument. Unfortunately, the trial court did not rule in our way. The trial court actually entered an order compelling our client to disclose or these non-parties to provide all of the information. There was no limits. Um, and that was one of the reasons we took an immediate appeal. We filed a petition for writ of certiorari in the first district court of appeal to say, look, there's a constitutional right to privacy at play here. Here's all the case law. Here's all the reasons why it should apply. 
and the trial court didn't even put in that kind of intermediate safeguard of saying, well, let me look at this stuff in camera and even see if it's worth disclosing if the defendant needs it. And John, I know you have dealt with this in other cases. Keela, we've talked, you know, privately that this, this thing comes up all the time. Interestingly though, there's not really clear case law in Florida that would say, you know, one way, yes or no, you're entitled to college records or you're entitled to cell phone records or, or et cetera. Obviously things are on a case by case basis, but I feel like there's a growing trend where the expectation is you got to give it all up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is. And the problem is it shouldn't be because some things that are relevant and some things are not. And yes, being a plaintiff in a personal injury lawsuit, you know, your whole life is on examination, right? You're being followed. You're being judged. You're being poked and prodded. You're going to the defense medical exam. You're being questioned. You're being called a liar. And it's like somebody did something to me, right? You smashed into me. Your flooring was dangerous, and I'm the one that's the bad guy? You know, and, and I really... I think it's disgusting. I get I get offended. I get personally offended. You know, and I forget it was in some kind of book and it might have been it might have been in like uh, you know Raleigh's book where he, it was like a letter from a client of like what they went through. Like a traumatic brain injury client and what they went through and it kind of opened my eyes to like what the plaintiffs have to do, the courage they really have to have to even get to trial. Like they have to have so much and then when you're exposing your life, we object. I mean, we, they want like female wellness issues in a case where and they're like, well, they might be complaining about back pain. And it's like, no, no, it hasn't, you know, and so we object. And what the law, and I think that what the law says is because in Florida, we do have a constitutional right to privacy. That is in our constitution. The court has to do two things. One, it has to perform a balancing test. And it has to do an in-camera review. It has to. It's mandatory, right? So, and a lot of the trial court judges are overworked. And when you say, look, judge, I'm going to object, but you have, you can get the records. It has to come to you, and you have to do a full, complete in-camera inspection of all 400 pages of these records and determine if there's something relevant. They don't want to do that. So what happens a lot of times, they say, look, we'll send it to you as the plaintiff's lawyer. You look through it. If there's anything that's relevant, you turn it over. If not, then you, you say there's nothing in there, Right. And that, that's what yeah, we've, the, that's what we've the seen happen. The upshot of that, obviously, is your client's rights are being protected. Right? Correct. You can't guarantee that nothing will get disclosed, but you can guarantee your client that degree of protection that some independent intermediary is going to review them or that we will first and really make sure that there's nothing in there that is revealing too much. So, John, you know, one of the things that maybe you can talk about, you know, we're not creating an attorney-client relationship. This is not legal advice, but merely, you know, merely for education value. Maybe you can educate people out there when a defendant serves a proposal for settlement, you're not stuck by just that, that inherent risk. Oh my gosh, if I don't beat this at trial, I might be looking down the barrel at additional attorney's fees. There are tools out there that are available to our clients should they choose to uh, avail themselves of them. And, and one of them is an insurance product. Maybe you can talk to people about that. Yeah, I, th I think there's, so there's different things um, for both attorneys and clients to help uh, alleviate some of the risk of going to trial and having an adverse result, right? Um, there's insurance first for um, we as the contingency fee lawyers, we advance particular costs on behalf of our client. Um, you can buy insurance at the start of the case 
for a certain monetary amount, and I believe it's like 7%. So if you said, okay, I think I'm going to spend 20 grand on this case, it would cost you $1,400 at the beginning of the case, and then up to $20,000 worth. If you spend those costs and you lose, you would get your costs reimbursed to you as the lawyer. That's one device. I don't, we don't use that that much. Um, as we've done, you know, I wish I had it on some cases, but you know, now we don't do that. I'd like to say we don't, uh, have that many adverse results. We do, but we try to keep our costs uh, managed in, in other ways. And then for, with respect to the proposal for settlement, there's, there's insurance for that because what happens is again, it, it in this particular case, they served a PFS for $50,000. If we went to trial and got less than 37, five, which would be 75% of the offer, our client would be responsible for paying all their attorney's fees. So what we do is we advise our clients to get insurance. There's insurance for this saying, look, if it's, you know, I want to have, you know, I think they do 10000 25000 50000 100 $250,000 of coverage to protect against an adverse trial result with a proposal for settlement. Now, this can alleviate risks for the client and the lawyer. Right. Well, not so much for the lawyer. I mean, obviously, if we go to trial, we lose. We just lose. You well, know. It, there's a real risk, the human risk, which is if the client elects not to get that coverage and you told them to do that, we go to trial. Don't beat the PFS and the defendant comes after them for fees. That's going to infuriate the client. Correct. Oh, my God. Now I owe money. I thought I was going to get money. You're like, hey, I, I encourage you to get this insurance. So we have a letter we send out. We make it very well known. This is a really good way to manage risk. And um, and we've seen it when they we, we don't have the insurance and we have those clients that don't have the healthy risk appetite that I have and well as Jordan has, they resolve their case. They're like, I, well, look, I, I have a pretty reasonable offer. I was like, look, I think you can get more at trial. There's no guarantees, you know, but you have this risk of this proposal for settlement and then you may owe money. Well, I have to pay money. Like, nah, I'll just settle my case. Right. right. So, so, so if you had sometimes, you know, sometimes justice comes in many forms. And I think sometimes going to trial is much is, you know, a better opportunity for the plaintiff to get full and fair justice. If you have the insurance that protects them and say, look, there's no guarantees, we could have this issue. And especially when you're dealing with a, a larger comparative fault case, right, that this may be your responsibility, there may be a lot on you, which could lower the, the damages down, and then you lose the PFS, you know, so having that backdrop to protect the clients is something we advise them to get. And it helps. We've had it. We had a case where like, look, we settled with one defendant. We're going to take a shot at the next defendant. They got PFS insurance for, we got, you know, she bought that for her out of the first settlement and we went to trial. We did not after set offs and everything, it ended up being a def, like a defense verdict. Um, and we had the PFS insurance that paid, the attorney's fees, the defense. Protect so, the client, yeah. You know? So we've seen them and say, look, you want to go to trial? Let's take this little bit of money, take a shot. We may get more, we may not, but you know, it, we're willing to take that, take that, take that chance. I think the, yeah. And the lesson here is that proposals for settlement can be very effective tools to leverage as the, the defendants leverage against your client to pressure them into making them take an offer that is less than they otherwise might or avoiding a trial that they otherwise might want to go to. And so these are just things that along the way you have to do you have to educate your clients to help them make the best choices that they can, given the information and resources to insulate themselves uh, against risk. But the, the final thing I want to say on risk reward is because we got the million tendered and it wasn't an easy road. It went, uh, I think it actually went 50, 125, 200, 350, and then the million. Well, I can tell everyone out there definitively that I think the primary reason we got the million is because we made it crystal clear to the other side, specifically the adjuster on the file, 
once our PFS expired at 250 and, and they started calling our client a liar, basically making those insinuations, um, that was done. The chance for them to get out of the case for less than policy limits was done. It was never coming back. And every single communication I had with the other side in terms of money <clears throat> always ended the same way. Basically, you're wasting your time unless and until you offer at least the policy limits. The policy is already open. We think there's bad faith. You guys have balked at tendering. You've never tendered to this day. We're years in, blah, blah, blah. Don't waste my time. And every time they would go up from 50 to 125, a big jump, we'd snap back after talking to the client. She was always available, thankfully. We like quickly within a few minutes, rejected, stop wasting my time. Then 200, rejected, that ship is sailed, stop wasting my time. 350, right? A couple of weeks before trial, big jump from 200, snap, rejected with client's authority, stop wasting my time. And um, the last email I sent to them basically was look, our current demand is three point something far in excess of your limits. If you want to negotiate with me, you need to start with at least a million, right? That was in writing. It doesn't always work, but I think because of the history of this case, we had been crystal clear throughout. We're never letting you out for less. At, f at some point, the adjuster just realized we were telling the truth, which we were. And when they finally tendered, now you want to talk about risk reward in the back end. Now it's telling the client, well, what's the, the risk of going to the trial at this point? We might get less. And the risk also is even if we get more, there's no guarantee you can collect more in a bad faith case. Under all circumstances, this is the best outcome. Let's take it. She was ecstatic. There was tears of joy shed. It was a really cool moment for us. You know, we changed her life and she'll never forget it. We'll never forget it. In a challenging case, when you can get a, an exceptional result of which this was it, I think we, you know, it's a, it's a really nice thing is what we do. So yeah. I, I personally want to just talk a little bit. I know we're running out of time. Um, I, I want to talk about a little bit about sharing ideas because, you know, this case was one where internally we workshopped it all the time we came up with these creative ways to do, you know, surveillance and arguments with the evidence code and you name it, it was definitely a team effort. Um, but this brings me to a, another point, which is this, nobody goes at it alone or nobody should. And even if you're a solo practitioner out there, you know, the, the sharing of ideas with like-minded people who can be creative and are willing to, to share, the, that's, that's the key. They have to be willing to share their ideas. Um, I say I'm all for it. And that's why John and I created that discord for plaintiffsattorneys.com server right now, just available in Florida. We'll be having George out there in a bit. It's free. And I think, you know, email listservs are a thing of the past. You know, everybody's replying all and they're sharing ideas. It gets lost. First of all, it chunks up your inbox and, and meaningful data gets lost. But if you can find a, a small collective of people who are willing to not be selfish, but selfless with their ideas and strategy, you can really see some powerful things happen. And, uh, even since we've made that settlement happen, uh, now we've had other people reach out to us. They have similar cases and we're helping them. We're sharing ideas and all that. And I want everybody out there to know we're, we're an open book. I mean, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you represent human beings, not companies and insurance companies, you know, join us in that Discord server, discord for plaintiffsattorneys.com. We're happy to share ideas and, and help you out as well. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, and I, I don't know, I guess maybe this comes in the context of sharing ideas because I want your idea and, and kind of this thing that I think we forgot to talk about with respect to comparative negligence and, and trial is that do you, do you or do you not accept responsibility? Do you or do you not say, you know what, my client did wrong, like, you know, she's wrong or he's wrong or they did something um, because, you know, we talk a lot about, about like credibility and maintaining credibility with the jury. And I, and I, we had talk about this and we were like, you know, do we, are we going to say that what she did? And remember, it's not that she did was, was wrong. It's what was what she did unreasonable, right? Was 
because it's going to spill over in my floor? Am I moving into the cup holder? Was that action unreasonable? And I think we kind of said we're going to say no. Well, it was not unreasonable. But we had a case. I had a case that I tried where a guy went through like a downed fence at a flea market. And we had to say, look, like he what he did was wrong. Like he shouldn't have done that. Obviously, the, the duty to maintain. He saw other people doing it. You know, you never want to do just because others are doing it. But we went in front of the jury and said, you know what? Give our client some responsibility. Give him a percentage of it. I think we told him 10%. They put 25%. And what I think that that does, if you really have a case and you have to think about this and says, if you really have a case where your client did something that was unreasonable or was wrong, I think you have to own it. I think you got to own it and say, look, control it, say that we did wrong, because what, what happened is in that same case, the defense said, didn't say, you know, we did something wrong, too. They were like, oh, we did nothing wrong. It's all him. Like, it's just 100% him. And I think that because we, if you contrast the two, we're bringing the lawsuit saying, look, we did some responsibility, put some blame on us. And then that contrast that with them saying, oh, no, we did nothing wrong, when clearly they did wrong. And the jury was, I think they almost got punished for that. And I think they lost credibility. So Yeah, I mean, by the way, you tried that case with Zach, who is not in our firm. He's a friend of yours you've known for years, another plaintiff's lawyer, an exceptional lawyer, great trial lawyer. But you had tried that with him. And so that is a sharing of ideas. I mean, you guys came at that same case, same objective, but you came at it with different backgrounds and experiences, different ideas. And you guys came up with collectively through that through that share process, you came up with the winning strategy. At the end of the day, that was the winning strategy. Had you gone in there and said, our client's not at fault at all, despite A, B, C, and D, you might have immediately lost credibility with the, jur the jury and you're coming out of there with a, a goose egg. You know, I mean, that happens. So, yeah. Um, and, and we share, I mean, look, me and Jordan talk like every day, you know, I mean, he's, you know, it's different because he's in Atlanta, you know, he's in Georgia, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm down here still in South Florida, but we are so active and engaged in every case. It, it was, you know, it was funny. I was talking to our, our director of appellate practice, talking to Terry last night, and he was like telling me about the things that were happening that. I've already, I talked to Jordan about it. So like, I'm, I'm well in deep of like things that are happening, orders come in, you know, because we want to see, what do you think about this? What, what's the next approach? How are we going to handle it? What can we do? And sometimes, you know, you can get a d different perspective. Like Jordan will have a different perspective or a different thought on something that I was like, you know, I didn't think about that. That's actually a good idea. Let's try it. Or, you know, and you know, everything, not just trial and, and statements, but everything about a case should be a collaborated effort. Whether yeah, it's, and you know what? Let me confess some shortcomings here that I have. I mean, that could fill 16 episodes, but uh, <laughs> Lord knows I'm, I'm totally imperfect. But at trial, one of my biggest shortcomings, and this is on the topic of sharing ideas, <clears throat> I had a really bad habit. That's what it was. There's no way about it. That when I was doing an examination of a witness live at trial, I would stop the examination when I felt like I was done and sit down. I never conferred with a colleague at counsel table. You see people do it all the time, moment to confer, moment to confer. Um I can't really give a good enough reason as to why from the outset, I never sought to do that. Part of me, I just felt like it was a, an awkward interruption. Sometimes I felt like if I had a mic drop moment during a cross, I wanted the juror to sit on that and not the last words to say one more moment Oh, nothing further. But I've matured as a lawyer. And I think everyone out there, if you are a lawyer, you have to be willing to evolve, mature, change, grow as new information becomes available. And I can say without question that, you know, John pulled me aside early on and he was like, look, dude, you know, you missed this, this and this, or you could have said this, or what about this point? And it only took one or two times before I realized he was absolutely right. I mean, I'd seen everybody else do it, but 
but I'm not going to do something just because everyone else does it. I value John's opinion. I know how dedicated he is to the craft. And when he started showing me brass tacks, this is what you missed. Now I've started doing that. And we've had a really, we've, we've had better results as a, re, uh, as a result of that. And that's another very like nuanced way of just saying, don't be, don't be so guarded and don't be so unwilling to accept new information, new ideas, because it doesn't always come from a CLE. It doesn't always come in some book you're going to read or somebody else you pass by in the hallway. Sometimes it comes from within your own firm, frankly, even at your own council table. And you just got to be willing and receptive to those ideas. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I do, I agree. I, Jordan, we tried a few cases together when we first partnered up and he would just be like, no further questions. And I would have like little, just one liner things. Like I thought we needed to have covered. And so, you know, he's done great at that. He comes and checks doing anything. And even if even if it just comes over and say, dude, you're doing a good job, like, that's awesome. You crushed. You know, that support at a moment in trial can even provide volumes. Um, you know, and or and and I I check it now sometimes. I do it in the middle of an examination. You know, I'm like I have a question about something because I try to have notes, but I'm not on script, so I'm very fluid in my examinations, and so sometimes I'm like things just come out organically you know the last trial when we're talking about on the video and we heard something for the first time that in trial that I hadn't even thought about and then talked and asked questions and it played out well you know but to be able to go back and say I want to do this what do you think about this real quick you know and just ask the judge you know and I think part of my doing that was trial team you know trial team in school very formalistically like brief moment to concern you know go over there and be like you know and sometimes even if you didn't even have anything to say but what that kind of taught me is that go and just talk to, to your partner, your trial partner, your trial team, and say, is there anything you think I should cover? Did I get anything? Is there anything that I missed? Because I do miss things. Or if there's one or two points that you miss, and then sometimes, you know, and I know Zach does this when we're in trial, you know, he'll make a thing of things that I need to cover, and he'll kind of check them off, right, of things that in his mind need to be covered and so if I've covered them, then they're checked off. And that's something interesting. If you can say, this is what I would want out of this witness, did you cover it, and then just check it off. And then that way you can say, no, this is what I thought, and you can have it you know, readily available. It's pretty good. you know. And, and like I said, trial, as with the practice, as with every case, should be collaborated because people, you know, we can have like-minded ideas, but having different ideas I think is what makes it great. Look, so. at the end of the day, I, even if you're a solo mm -hmm. practitioner, you better get out there and find some people that you – you can learn to trust in terms of their professional judgment and wisdom, and they don't have to be doing it for 50 years. They could be doing it even less than you have. Mm -hmm. Many of the best ideas that I've ever received or have been shared with me have had been from people who had fresh eyes. They hadn't been grizzled or been through it. And I just want to share this as a final point, at least for me. Uh, here we are all these years into practice, and we've had all these different cases, all these different things happen. The biggest reward financially for our firm, the biggest results, whether through settlement or verdict, every single one of them without exception have been a team effort. And I don't just mean that somebody helped on the file or somebody was sitting down there at council table to even take notes. I'm talking about in the trenches early on from discovery throughout because you frame your case through discovery. So get out there and collaborate. Even if you're a solo, find someone. Again, don't look down at your plate and say, but this is my meal. I don't want to share it. Trust me. How about if you can turn your single plate of food into a never-ending buffet? You can do that in one case by making a good decision, by being open-minded and bringing in somebody to help and give you some fresh ideas. So that's all I've got today. I'm glad we were able to uh, sit down and talk about that recent settlement. It's a great, great win for the client, and that's what matters most. And I hope to have many more in the future. I know you and I are talking behind the scenes on having some uh, different guests come on, different topics. 
maybe even talking about the appellate practice. A uh, little teaser, I've reached out to someone who not everybody out there can say this, especially those that have done only appeals. Somebody out there who once won 9-0 unanimous in front of the United States Supreme Court. So we're going to see if he's going to come on. And uh, But I appreciate everyone's time, and uh, I'm having a good time doing this, and I hope you feel like there's some value for you out there. Yeah, and, and uh, likewise, and hopefully uh, we got a progressive Uber UM case that they want to take us to verdict again, even though we just hit them for excess. So we got another one here in Broward County in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully we'll be sharing those good results with you as well. All right, take care, everybody. See you guys. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at on justice pod on Instagram and Twitter or check out discord for plaintiffattorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.